So as you know, our theme this Advent season is the world is about to turn, which is a refrain from the canticle, excuse me, from the Advent hymn, the canticle of the turning, uh, part of which we heard and sung just a few moments ago during the lighting of the candles of the Advent wreath. The text of that hymn comes to us, uh, it's a paraphrase of the Magnificat, that which Mary sang uh, when she found out the good news that she was carrying the Christ child. Uh, this sacred season, the season of Advent, is, is a time that reminds us that, that the work of God is always unfolding, that it's always turning, it's always unfolding, both in us, but also through us, and that our lives, our histories, our actions, they're all interconnected, they're all woven together with those that have come before us, but also with those that will come after us, generation after generation, those before us, those that will come after us. Now, the scripture text that we're going to look at this morning comes from Luke's gospel. Uh, we tend to turn to him quite a bit this time of year. Uh, he provides the most detail uh, to the story of Jesus' birth, but, but not only that, his vision, his way of seeing the story, it offers a lot more color, a lot more nuance, a lot more texture. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the story of Mary, who was a young woman in a town called Nazareth, a tiny little town, uh, who was visited by an angel by the name of Gabriel. Now, we say young woman, but I'm not sure that that's really an accurate statement, at least not in today's standards. Because really, according to us, she's a girl. A girl from a poor family in an out-of-the-way town. Nazareth only had probably two, maybe 300 people at most. And this angel comes and tells her that, that she has found favor with God and that she's going to bear a child, and that she should name him Jesus, that he will be the son of the Most High. He will become king of Israel, rise to the throne of David. So I invite you to hear this ancient text that continues to speak to us in new ways. From Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and he said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was perplexed. By his words and pondered what kind of greeting this might be. He said to her, Mary, do not be afraid. Now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name will be Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David, he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be? For I am a virgin. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And it is the sixth month with her who was said to be barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of God for the people of God. Now, church, I don't want to brag or anything, but when I was serving a church in Atlanta, Georgia, a number of years ago, Santa was a member of my church. <laughs> Santa Dan was the real thing. Uh, he was uh, Santa not just around Christmas time, but especially this time of year, but the truth is we didn't see him much this time of year. He had a lot of shifts to cover down at the mall, listening to kids that would come and tell him what he wanted. Now, but what, yet he would come back after Christmas, and he was always pretty worn out, as you can imagine. He always walked with a little limp with all those kids sitting on his lap, but, but he always had the best stories to tell. And one year in particular, he told me the story of this little girl that came and stood in a long line in order to see him, to have, his, have her picture made. And when she walked up, he said she looked like she had just walked off the pages of a catalog. Her dress was perfect. Her bow in her hair was straight. It was just perfect. She looked like she had just walked off the pages of a catalog. But when she sat down on his lip, her bottom lip started to quiver and tears started to well up in her eyes. And Santa said, it's okay. You don't need to be afraid. Just tell me what you want for Christmas. And then... At that moment, the tears really began to fall. And she said, that's just it. I already have everything. I already have everything, and I'm afraid that I won't get Christmas. Oh. I think we all live with that fear, don't we? That we won't get Christmas. Not necessarily that we won't get what we want for Christmas, but that somehow, somehow all of the, the wonder and the mystery and the awe of this season will somehow just sort of be lost on us, that we won't get Christmas, that we get so caught up in all of the gift giving and the card sending and the party attending that, that we'll just miss Christmas, that we won't get Christmas, that we'll spend so much time and energy preparing our homes for Christmas, that we don't spend enough time preparing our hearts for the arrival of the Christ child. And I would argue that's the reason why Advent is so important, because Advent itself is a gift. It's a time when we, when we open ourselves up, we allow the light to shine into some of those dark places in our lives. We prepare our hearts as well as our homes, for the coming of the Christ child. 
So maybe, maybe it's helpful for us to know that we aren't the only ones that are afraid this time of year. Did you hear, did you hear a moment ago the voice of the angel Gabriel? Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid. You found favor with God, the angel says. Now, to get the full picture of this incredible story, we need, to be, we need to start at the beginning when the angel first appears to Mary. As I said a moment ago, she was likely a girl of all maybe 13, 14, 16 at the absolute tops, but yet a more mature 13-year-old than we might expect because that was the age when young women would get married in the ancient Near East. And we were told a moment ago in the story that she was engaged to be married. But mature or not, she was, she was no better prepared for the visit of an angel than you or I might be. And keep in mind, too, that this messenger brought to her good news that, that probably didn't seem all that good to her in that moment. We can only assume, we can only imagine that she was not rejoicing that she was terrified. Now keep in mind that being pregnant out of wedlock in that time was a crime punishable by death. It's hard for us to remember that being female alone was enough to make her virtually invisible, but add to the fact that she was poor, that she was from this small, out-of-the-way town, you put all of this together, and according to everything that was stacked up against her, this young girl was destined not for greatness, but for great trouble. The text says that when the messenger appeared from God and told her everything that was about to happen, that Mary was perplexed. <laughs> perplexed. That's quite a word there, perplexed. It may be the understatement of all understatements. Perplexed? You're darn right. She was perplexed. But I can also imagine that she was filled with, with fear and dread, and questions that probably started uh, streaming to her mind, but she was too stunned to speak out loud. But undoubtedly, she, she had running through her mind questions like, how was she going to tell Joseph? How was she going to tell her, her parents? Would he stick around? Would they still love her? What, what about her friends? Were, were they going to stick around to help her as well? And then there were the other questions. What about the labor? Is that going to be hard? Will there be someone there to help me when my time comes? And then inevitably, the most important, perhaps, question of all. You say, Gabriel, that this child will become the son of the Most High, but what? what's going to happen to me? She probably wondered. You see, these are questions that any one of us would ask, would struggle with, would worry about. They're the sort of things that would cause any of us to be afraid. I suspect, too, that she wasn't the only one who was afraid in that moment. Frederick Buechner, who was a fantastic author, he died earlier this year, a great loss to this world. He writes about this interaction between Mary and Gabriel and says that you have to imagine that surely she struck Gabriel as being hardly old enough to have a child, let alone this child. And when he said to her, Mary, it's okay, you don't need to be afraid, that there was a part of him that was hoping that she wouldn't notice that underneath those great golden wings that he himself was trembling with fear, trembling with fear that the whole fortune of, of creation was hanging in the balance of a girl, 
of this girl. Mary certainly was afraid. Gabriel was trembling with fear. Fear, as we all know, is a very powerful emotion. It has this ability to, to take hold of us, to, to not let us go. And so, so maybe this is a good time, a good reminder to us who live in what is oftentimes referred to as a, as a culture of fear. Parker Palmer once said that fear, fear is the air that we breathe. It's the water that we swim in. He says we subscribe to religions that exploit our dread of death. We do business in an economy of fear driven by consumer worries about, about keeping up with the neighbors. We practice a, a politic of fear in which candidates are elected by playing on voters' anxieties about race and class. Fear is the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in. As a result, many of us have adopted what Brene Brown refers to as a culture of disappointment. Disappointment as a lifestyle, she says. Now, Brene is a social worker. She does all sorts of research and is a, is a great, powerful speaker and author. And she says this, this disappointment as a lifestyle, it sort of looks like this, that, that something good happens in our lives, something wonderful takes place, but yet we feel compelled to sort of, to sort of beat disappointment to the punch. Right? That was nice. That was great. What happened was wonderful. But don't get too excited now. Because inevitably something else will happen. This won't last long. We do that in the church all the time. We just raised $9 million. Well, that's not quite enough. We need a little bit more. Attendance last week was great. Oh, but yes, next week, though, they're going to be announcing the college football playoffs. No one's <laughs> going to come at 11 o'clock that week. We say this all the time. We have chosen disappointment as a lifestyle. Now, Brene Brown has done research, <clears throat> excuse me, to back all of this up. She did this study. She did this study where she showed hundreds of small groups a, a film clip of a family on Christmas Eve. Excuse me. <clears throat> film clips of a, a family on Christmas Eve. and the, They're in a car on their way to Grandma's house after going to church. And they were listening to one of those radio stations that, that you know, the ones that, that play Christmas carols starting the day after Halloween and run all the way through. They're listening to one of those radio stations and, and, and Jingle Bells comes on, and the, the camera pans to the children in the back, and they are singing Jingle Bells with smiles from ear to ear. And then they pan up to the front, the front seat where mom and dad are there, and they look each other with love in their eyes, and they're singing along too. And then Brown stops the clip, and she says, okay, okay, what happens next? Write the script. Finish it out for us. What happens next? And what do you think most people said? What do you think most people said? How would you write that script? Well, since you're all not talking this morning, let me just tell you, 60%, 60% said car crash. 60% said car crash. And not only that, but there was another 15% that was equally fatalistic, but yet a little bit more creative. One person said, the camera cuts to an oncologist who is reading a bad report that he must give the dad the day after Christmas. 
Another is a little too scary. In her script, she writes, they arrive at grandmother's house where a serial killer is waiting in the bushes. <laughs> now, I remember reading this and thinking, who are these people? <laughs> and then it dawned on me, they're us. They are us. We are those people. Here's the point. 75% are sure that something bad is going to happen next. That is the culture of disappointment. Now, sure, this is an indictment on the media, but, but bigger, I think it's more profound than that, that, that this has become, for many of us, the go-to response, the default reaction, and not just in the media, but in our real lives, and the thing that we need to, to make sure that we realize, that we recognize, is that this is dangerously, that this is profoundly dangerous. Brown says that this cynicism causes us to live in fear. Fear is a, a complex emotion. It often robs us of the life we want, and sometimes, sometimes it even robs us of experiencing the joy that is present in the life and in the very moment that we have, you see, the reality is that all of us, everyone worries about something. That we all have these things that we fear. And most of us, most of us have seasons and times when, when the anxieties and fears simply, simply overwhelm us. Because fear is a powerful emotion that shapes us in ways that we oftentimes don't even fully understand. Look behind depression's door and I would argue that you'll find fear. I think the same is true for addiction. Look behind the door of addiction and there's, there's fear lurking someplace. Fear beneath broken marriages, broken friendships, beneath prejudice and hate. All of those places you'll find fear lurking in the darkness. And the truth is in my ministry I've seen firsthand in the lives of people that I love how fear can imprison, can paralyze us from experiencing a fulfilling and a joyful life. A few years ago, I took a sabbatical. And while I was on sabbatical, I traveled to Costa Rica. And one of the things that I'd always wanted to do is I'd always wanted to learn to surf. And so while I was in Costa Rica, I took a lesson. And the truth is, I was not very good. But before we even got into the water, I remember something that my instructor said. My instructor told me that the first thing to know about surfing, and I would argue the first thing to know about life, is where you look is where you will go. Where you look is where you will go. And so if you're standing on a surfboard and you look down at the water, guess where you're going to go? Where you look is where you're going to go. The first thing you have to do is to put your eyes on where you want to go, to let your eyes steer you where you want to go. It's a practice, he said, a focus of attention. It's a practice of vision. And the truth is, whether we're honest about it or not, I think a lot of us focus on fear, on, on what could go wrong in any given situation. And if that's where we fix our eyes, that's where we'll go. So maybe this morning, maybe this season, the season of Advent, maybe we need to look in other directions. Now, 
I don't know if you'll notice, but as we go throughout this Christmas season, you may notice that this phrase, this refrain, keeps popping up in all of the stories. Do not be afraid. It's what the Gabriel told Mary, but it's also what we'll hear time and again. Do not be afraid. But it's not just in the Christmas story. In fact, it, it appears all through the Scriptures. In fact, of, of all the commandments in the Bible, of which there are 613, most of us focus on the 10, but there are 613 commandments in Scripture. And 365 of those have to do with not being afraid. Do not be afraid is one of the most often repeated over and over again. More so than, than love God, more so than love your neighbor. And more than one person has pointed out that, that yes, it appears 365 times, one for every day of the year. It's almost as if the writers of Scripture knew that this was going to be a default, our default response. And so we needed a daily reminder that God is with us, that we need not be afraid. You see, when we turn to Scripture over and over again, what we see is that God shows up in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our confusion, and God meets us right there and says, you don't need to be afraid. I'm with you. This morning, in this Advent season, is there a place in your life where you need to hear the words of that angel? Is there a part of you that is longing for Gabriel to visit you with that message of peace, of, of reassurance, and say to you in the midst of that moment, in the midst of that, that situation, that place in your life, you don't need to be afraid. You found favor with God. God is with you in all of this. So church, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of more love in your marriage. Don't be afraid of more uh, love in your family, a better relationship with your kids, with your parents. Don't be afraid of the need to forgive someone who's wronged you. Don't be afraid to ask forgiveness of someone you've done wrong. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid and see how your fear can be transformed into faith. You see, the daily day is surely coming, friends, when God will use a manger to remind us that we have found favor with God, that, that we have been chosen by an infant king, a king whose kingdom is not of this world. And until that day comes, we are invited to be quiet enough, to be still enough that we can hear that still, small voice that tells us again and again and again, don't be afraid. God is with you.